This is Lexis, the podcast all about linguistics. Hi, I'm Matthew Butler. I'm Jackie Glancy. I'm Dan Clayton. And I'm Lisa Casey. So on this episode of Lexis, we're really pleased to welcome Elena Samino, who's a professor at Lancaster University, Department of Linguistics and English Language. From an early interest in stylistics, that's led into a number of different areas of interest over the last three decades, including corpus linguistics and the power of metaphor. So thank you very much for joining us, Elena. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So Elena, can we just start by asking you a little bit about your background as a linguist and the kind of interests that have driven your research? Yes, sure. I mean, when I when I think back about my life, I realised that actually I had an interest in languages before I was aware of it. I, I went to school in university in Italy. I studied uh, Latin and ancient Greek and unlike most of my contemporaries. And then I went to university in Italy and studied uh, English and German. And I took a series of modules on uh, linguistics, which was new to me as a, as a science of language. And it, it, it is new to most people when mm-hmm. you mention it to them because it's not a school subject. And so eventually I ended up teaching Italian as a foreign language in the UK and doing postgraduate research in linguistics. So it's, it's been a kind of long journey to anticipate some of the metaphors we may be talking about that has always been focused on how wonderful and amazing it is to have uh, such a complex, sophisticated way of communicating through language and, of course, through other media, but also how important linguistic choices are to convey different effects, to project your identity, to manage relationships. And so that is how I ended up uh, where I am through, through those different studies and different experiences. So could you, could you maybe let us know a little bit about what you're concentrating on at the moment and, and your work at the moment? Yes, sure. So actually, throughout my career, I've always been interested in how linguistic choices made in texts, whether written or spoken, um, uh, frame topics in different ways and facilitate uh, certain responses as opposed to others. And that has led me to focus particularly on metaphor because metaphor is a framing device. It involves talking and thinking about one thing in terms of another. And whatever you choose is going to give you a different perspective on the thing that you're talking about. So whether we see the pandemic, for example, as um, an enemy that we have to beat or a test that we have to pass gives us a very different perspective on on the pandemic or whether we see what is happening in the UK and other countries, say in relation to vaccines, as a race or not, will also affect how we perceive things, what we regard as success, etc. So because I am interested in linguistic choices and their effects and what they might reflect in terms of perspectives and framing. I have looked at metaphor in relation to different phenomena, and most recently in relation to the COVID-19 pandemic, because not only because it's such an urgent, complex and overwhelming phenomenon, but also because metaphors have been used throughout the pandemic by politicians, in the media, by scientists and ordinary people. And therefore, it is particularly important to understand what those metaphors are, um, how they're used and what the consequences might be. And how is it you go about identifying metaphors? Do you rely on intuition or is there a method for analysing and identifying metaphors in discourse? Yes. So inevitably, intuition plays a part, but that intuition is based on 
uh, a definition of what metaphor is. There are different definitions. They overlap a lot. So even if people come at it from different perspectives, there's, there's a core that most people would agree on. But also there are procedures, very explicit procedures for the identification of metaphors in language. And some years ago, I collaborated with, with regard to metaphor identification, the way we came up with this procedure, which is now quite influential, was because a, a metaphor researcher based in Amsterdam, Herod Stein, got a group together, as I say, with 10 people, uh, I think the first time we met in 2000, with the explicit goal of, of agreeing on a nine colleagues, so a group of 10 people interested in metaphor, got together to produce a, a, a a method for identifying metaphors in language and that came out as a as a journal article in uh, 2007. It sounds like our kind of party, 10 linguists in a room <laughs> figuring out a method for identifying metaphors and then writing a journal article about it. Intuition is important and we should never underestimate it but uh, if we're doing research we need to have an agreed methodology for deciding what counts as a metaphorical expression. It doesn't mean that we always agree, but what it means is that I can make my assumptions and my approach explicit when I might say in this data set, there are these many instances of mm. metaphor. At least mm. people will know how I've gone about identifying them. And they might use a different approach or the same one, but at least we have a way of comparing our results. So that is why it's important. Mm. Just on that, I was thinking about some of the research you've done on corpus linguistics and metaphors. How, how difficult is it using corpus tools to analyse metaphors? Because obviously computers, they don't have tuition like we do. So how, how do you go about uh, overcoming that issue? So there are people in computational linguistics and natural language processing who uh, try to write programs that identify metaphors. And essentially those programs try to find ways of disambiguating the different senses of a word. So, you know, I mentioned my, the journey of my studies and my interest in linguistics. Well, if a, a piece of software trying to identify metaphors comes across journey, it needs to be able to disambiguate using the context and other things, whether it's referring to a physical journey or whether it's referring to a metaphorical journey. But I'm a corpus linguist, and so I use corpus tools in sort of creative and eclectic ways to help identify potential metaphors. So, and there are different ways of doing it. So if you're looking for similes, which are often included under metaphor, even though linguistically they're, they're a different realization, then you can go into a corpus and look for like as a preposition if the tool enables you to determine to, to select the part of speech. And then you're going to find in that concordance, that list of instances of like as a preposition, quite a few with these similes. And then you might um, want to analyze those. There are other words that are conducive to being followed by metaphors of figurative language. The word literally is often followed by hyperbole, exaggeration, and or metaphor. It's something that sometimes exercises people who have a prescriptivist approach to language and they say that the use of literally to introduce a metaphor is illogical. Well, no, it works perfectly well. And it's a, it's a kind of intensifier. It suggests I really mean what I'm about to convey via some figurative expression. So literally, if you're interested in metaphors, literally is a good word to concordance in a corpus. But there are also other ways that are semi-automated. So when we did a project on metaphors for cancer, we had 
data where people talked about their experiences of cancer. And in that data, if you look for either words or if you have a, a system for looking at the semantic fields, words belonging to certain semantic fields, which we had, then if you look for words relating, say, to warfare in uh, conversations about cancer, there is a high likelihood that, that within those words you will find, find quite a few metaphors. And so that's one of the things we did. But it always requires you looking at what the computer has identified and then checking whether they're actually metaphors. Whereas, of course, if you're looking at a corpus of articles about the Iraq war and you look for warfare expressions, they must be yeah. from. So there are different ways in which you can, you can facilitate the identification of uh, metaphors using corpus tools. But there's no kind of foolproof way of click, click on this uh, button and all the metaphors pop out. No, there isn't. There isn't anything like that. And it must be really difficult anyway, because I mean, I, I know I kind of struggle when I think about language generally used around us all the time. It's so so many metaphors, and it's really difficult to to avoid using them. And I, I mean, there's no reason to avoid using them really. But it's when it's when you try and unpick which ones are like metaphors and which ones are literal. But it, is it is it a language that is has got more metaphor in it than other languages? Is it is there something about English that means it seems to sort of lend itself to metaphor or is, or is this something that's universal to other languages you studied as well? Uh, I, I, I don't think there's anybody has suggested that some, some languages are more metaphorical than others. Uh, metaphor is a, a powerful tendency that we have in how we think and speak and, and it's primarily based on our tendency to perceive similarities or correspondences between different experiences. Yeah. And then you, using metaphors uh, massively expands your ability to, to communicate and think because you can use language and, and knowledge about one experience, such as whether it's war or journeys or sports, mm -hmm. to talk about another that might be new and complex, such as a pandemic, or you know, one, one uh, area of experience that, that pretty much any language talks about metaphorically is time because time is abstract and intangible and doesn't even exist without us experiencing change and so it is you know if you think about how we talk about time we talk about time passing we talk about you know the holidays approaching in english we even talk about days we talk about you know we say on wednesday yeah but and but then different languages do it slightly differently so for some languages the future is in front and the past is behind us for some languages the other way around for some languages uh, time is vertical so mm. you might have the past above you and the future below you but spatial language and concepts are essential to in the way we think and, and talk about time. But without that language, we wouldn't really be able to talk about time. In a way, metaphor is kind of reveals something about sort of shared human universals, do you think? Yeah, it's always difficult. You know, you, you'll always find that linguists are always careful to talk yes. about universality, <laughs> but <laughs> because it's so... Uh, it's such a complex, such a difficult uh, kind of thing to prove. However, it, it is fair to say that th there is evidence of a human tendency to talk and think, especially about more subjective, sensitive, sometimes abstract and complex things in terms of experiences that are more intersubjectively available, more visible, mm -hmm. things you can mm -hmm. touch. And, and that is what happens with time and space, that 
we we experience movement in space, but time is much more abstract and intangible. And so we connect the two things and we use language and, and concepts to do with movement in space to talk about time and think about time. So people have long argued about the power that language has to influence the way we think. And so thinking about things like sort of debates around Sapir and Wharf, some of the things that, you know, George Lakoff and others have written about the power of metaphor, for example, and framing. What evidence is there that language can shape the way we see the world, can, you know, influence the way we perceive the world around us? And could you sort of point to any research about cognitive impact of language on the brain? Yeah, so in, in relation to metaphor in particular, the what is probably the, the most influential recent theory of metaphor, a conceptual metaphor theory, developed by George Lakoff and, and Mark Johnson initially, suggests that metaphor is more a, lang- a matter of thought than a matter of language, or primarily a matter of thought. And in particular, that we have what Lakoff and Johnson call conventional conceptual metaphors. In other words, connections, that correspondences that they call mappings between different conceptual domains, knowledge about different areas of experience in brains, so that we have a tendency to make sense of one thing in terms of another. So to go back to time, that would be one example that we have a tendency to not just talk, but to think about time, to conceptualize time in terms of space. And the more powerful the conventional conceptual metaphors, the more we tend to think in terms of them without even realizing this. So on the one hand, this approach both explains some kind of Worfian element, in other words, that the, the way in which we talk that reflects how we think and constraints potentially or influences our thinking. But on the other hand, the, there's also evidence that shows that we're not totally trapped yeah. inside our metaphors. So there is evidence that the metaphors that we, the con- conventional metaphors and the metaphors that we use influence the way we think. So. If we go back to time and space, languages generally tend to conceptualize time in terms of space, but they do it differently. So as I said, the future may be in front, it may be behind you, it may be above you. And experiments have shown, and, and if you're interested in this work, uh, a US scholar called Daniel Casasanto is someone whose work you might want to look at. Experiments have shown that people react differently to different stimuli, depending on what particular spatial metaphor is used in their language for time. So they might estimate amounts of time differently depending on which particular metaphor for time is conventional in their language. There is also more specific evidence that if you give people different metaphors for the same thing, they reason about that differently. And that is much more in the moment. So we did a study, there are many, but we did a study with my colleagues on metaphors for cancer and gave people two versions of a text about somebody with cancer, one with a fight metaphor, one with the journey metaphor. And then we asked them the same questions, which was included things like, to what extent do you think this person might feel guilty if they don't get better? And the people who read the battle version attributed more potential feelings of guilt to the person if Mm. they didn't get better than the people who read the journey version. And that could be explained because in the battle framing, if you don't get better, you lose the battle. And then it might be, you could then perceive yourself as responsible. Whereas in the journey uh, metaphor, there is no losing, right? So we've got evidence that both conventional metaphors and metaphors that you might be exposed to in the moment that might have underlying conventional patterns 
influence how we think. Equally though, even with conventional metaphors, you always have, languages tend to have more than one metaphor for the same thing. So we conceptualize life as a journey, uh, as a game, as a battle. Arguments, for example, that you might have with people are conventional, conventionally talked about as fights or wars. You know, you can attack somebody's ideas, you can defend yours, you can win or lose an argument. But also we can talk about arguments as journeys. We can say, okay, let's see if we can meet in the middle, mm. right? So, so languages offer more than one perspective usually on things. So we're not entirely trapped. And also Daniel Casasanto's research has shown that if you take people who, whose language, for example, captures time spatially in a particular way, for example, along a horiz- movement along the horizontal axis, and you expose them briefly to uh, a, a metaphor for time that is used in a different language, for example, where time may be vertical, then after a brief period of exposure, people can then react in ways very similar to the, lang- to the people who speak that other language as native speakers. So on the one hand, there is definitely some influence on our thinking from the language that we speak, and definitely the conventional metaphors in our language influence us in some way. But equally, there is variety in language, and we always have the ability to think beyond or think differently. So we're not entirely trapped. And indeed, there are so many ways in which people question conventional metaphors and ways in which people come up with new metaphors that shows that there is also creativity. And, and, and so, we, you know, I, I wouldn't subscribe to a strong version of the Worfian hypothesis, even in relation to metaphor. Okay, so that brings us nicely back to kind of your current work on uh, metaphor and the COVID pandemic, particularly. And it's been really fascinating for us as kind of hobby and linguists to see the sort of metaphors governmental bodies have chosen to sort of frame the pandemic for the public and how that's sometimes sat in opposition to metaphors chosen by medical bodies or by individuals kind of who've experienced it personally. So can you tell us a little bit about the things that you found on your recent work? on COVID metaphors um, and then maybe something about what's come out about vaccines and vaccine metaphors as well because that seems to be a very hot topic at the moment. Yes so at the beginning of the pandemic I think it was difficult to miss how the dominant uh, metaphors for the pandemic in public discourse especially from politicians were to do with war. So the coronavirus is an enemy that we have to fight and beat and the need for a collective sacrifice, etc. And these were used by Boris Johnson, by Donald Trump, by the, the French president, the Italian prime minister, etc. And, and those metaphors were, on the one hand, it, it was totally understandable why they were being used. Because when you've got a problem that's serious and urgent, and you want to convey that to people, and, and this was really the most extreme collective problem we've ever experienced or change, uh, unprecedentedly fast change in terms of how we have to live our lives. War metaphors arguably are uh, quite suitable to convey that uh, sense of threat and urgency and the idea that we have to sort of change our behavior in order to try to deal with that problem. However, there were criticisms right from the start of those metaphors, partly because it could be argued that war metaphors are problematic anyway because of their associations with aggression and violence, etc. Mm. Um, there were criticisms uh, of the fact that they could be used to 
legitimize excessive governmental measures because then you could have something equivalent to sort of martial law that mm-hmm. might give executives uh, too much power and and that has been argued uh, in many cases but there were also more specific criticisms from people who know about research on metaphor on the one hand it is known that war metaphors can increase the perception of something as serious and urgent and persuade people that a, a behavior change is needed but also there is evidence that suggests that war metaphors are not that good at encouraging self-limiting behaviors where you have to refrain from doing something because mm. in a war or a fight, it's what you do that matters, not what you stop yourself from doing. And for, yeah. for most people, not obviously not key workers, but for most people, what was needed was the ultimate self-restraint, staying at home. And even now, we're, even though in the UK there are no more restrictions, there is still some degree of self-restraint that people are exercising. So there, was, there were criticisms of these metaphors. And on the... Uh, scholarly side of things. Some colleagues in Spain started an initiative called Reframe COVID, uh, which was modeled on um, what something we had done in relation to metaphors for cancer a few years before, a metaphor menu for uh, people with cancer. So Reframe COVID was a collective, uh, a crowdsourced enterprise to collect non-war metaphors for the pandemic because we see metaphors as resources and each metaphor, as I've already said, gives you a different perspective. So the more metaphors we have, the better. Now, in terms of how things have changed, the fighting metaphor never really fully goes away and mm. people still talk about uh, we can fight it, we can win, etc. Things have changed in the pandemic itself. We have now realized there isn't going to be a clear point of that might correspond to a victory. And, you know, in, in, in March 2020, Boris Johnson was saying we send the virus packing in 12 weeks. And packing, of course, is another metaphor. But not only has it taken longer, now we've realized, now we've been told we have to live with it, it will become endemic, it will be with us forever. So those metaphors have kind of become less appropriate and, uh, and so they, they are being used uh, less. However, there are other metaphors that capture different things. So the, the fact that the pandemic has caused major pressure on, on, for example, hospitals, and pressure itself is a bit metaphorical, but the more obvious one things like tsunami uh, people are talking mm. about tsunamis on health services and there is the related metaphor of the wave so the first wave the second wave the third wave and this is an interesting metaphor because it's very conventional so we talk about you know you can talk about waves of nausea in your body you can talk about waves of you know attacks terrorist attacks you can talk about waves all sorts of things and the conventional bit is very specific that you can talk about the rapid increase of something, usually negative, as a wave. And it combines a very basic metaphor where more is up with uh, the idea of change as a force, and then waves both rise and are natural forces. Also, it is consistent with the visual representation of infections yeah. uh, increasing or decreasing because it looks like a wave. Now, that metaphor is very conventional, it's very useful, but even that metaphor has been criticized, for example, by the World Health Organization, because, and this is as early as July 2020, waves are uncontrollable, right? Waves develop and wane irrespective of our control. And instead, the, the WHO was suggesting that the number of infections is very much dependent on our behavior. So they didn't want people to think that, for example, the fact that in summer 2020, things were better 
was primarily due to the virus doing something independently of us. In fact, mostly that there's a little seasonal element, but mostly it was our behavior that had led to a decrease in, in infections. So they critique that metaphor, but that didn't stop politicians, for example, the UK prime minister multiple times saying things, we're seeing a wave of infections in Europe. It will, he said at one point, wash up on our shores. So there he exploited the uncontrollability of literal waves to suggest there was nothing that could be done. Mm. And, and in fact, usually something can be done. And, and so using that metaphor could be a way of reducing your responsibility if, if when in fact, maybe you do have some responsibility in terms of decisions. That sense of responsibility is really what we seem to be getting into now that we're sort of post restrictions and into a sort of mask wearing, vaccination getting or not situation where lots of people seem to be critiquing the metaphors that the government are using now outside of COVID itself, but into the realm of social responsibility and personal responsibility. Yes, I mean, that is that is definitely the case. And even the metaphor that was used, that was very controversial by Sajid Javid, the health secretary, a couple of days ago, he talked about that now we can live with as opposed to cower from was it was criticized because it was it was again, it's it's the kind of it could you could imagine a war scenario. But but the the thing there was that he contrasted living with with cowering and cowering suggests cowardice. And so uh, people reacted to it because there's a difference between caution and cowardice. And of course, many people don't have the option of behaving normally if, if they're vulnerable in different ways. And so it was putting a negative evaluation on a choice that people might make to continue to be cautious when, when in fact, for many people, first of all, it's a choice to be respected. And we were being told to be cautious at the same time, actually, by the government. But also for some people, it's not a matter of, of choice. So that is that, that is definitely something that, that how we frame the ways in which we live from now on is, is going to be something interesting and, and controversial as well. So, so with vaccines, the initial metaphors were primarily to do with the development of vaccines. So the vaccine race. At the beginning, it was the race to develop vaccines. So it was what the scientists were doing. And then it became for a while, especially in the UK, it was a race to vaccinate once the vaccines had been developed, race to vaccinate. Mm. And so race obviously puts a competitive framing on things. And certainly it was slightly questionable to perceive ourselves in a race with other countries and sort of rejoice that we were ahead. First of all, it's not particularly friendly, but also we know, and this is going to be a problem in the future, that when, when nobody's safe until everybody's safe. So in fact, we should rejoice when other countries vaccinate as fast as possible rather than just us. Uh, now that metaphor, because other countries, at least in Europe, have vaccinated at least as much as the UK, then that metaphor is not being used quite as much. But the metaphor of the vaccine race, the development of the vaccine as a race, has had consequences because quite apart from the sort of anti-vax movement, which is opposed to vaccines generally and was already opposed to vaccines. The fact that vaccines were being developed faster than usual caused legitimate concerns on, on the part of many people who legitimately asked themselves, but you know, is this safe if it's been done so quickly? And so now some metaphors that I find really interesting are being used for reassurance. So a Guardian columnist used what I thought was a brilliant metaphor precisely to explain this business that that speed of vaccine development didn't necessarily go at the expense of safety. 
So she said, she compared vaccine development to restaurants cooking the different courses in, uh, let's say, three-course meat. So she said things that normally happen in sequence in the development of vaccines have been happening in parallel. So normally when a vaccine is developed, first uh, there are some initial tests, then then the, the researchers need to get some funding, then there are multiple phases. They're slowed down by the fact that usually funding is not available at this, for, for COVID, money was not object because governments just wanted the vaccines to be developed. And they didn't wait until one stage was finished to start the next one. And of course, it, the first stage then didn't lead to what they thought. They could have changed the second stage. So the metaphor is the equivalent to a restaurant cooking your starter, your main meal and your dessert simultaneously, and then bringing them to you all together. So each course has been cooked in exactly the same way as before and it's just as nice, but the speed of uh, delivery to your table has been sped up. Now, of mm. course, in, with a restaurant meal, you may not want it, things may go cold or something, <laughs> but the, the idea, I think, is accessible and very vivid that the, the difference between doing things in sequence or in parallel, when you do things in parallel, you can do things just as carefully and going through the same steps but you get something produced quicker at the end. So this is one that's really interesting and that sort of counter um, balances the concerns that might be raised by the idea of a race, a speed of development. Another one that I thought was interesting is uh, some people are concerned because the, the vaccines based on uh, messenger RNA, uh, the Pfizer and Moderna in particular, uh, people are concerned that they might alter their DNA. And, and so they're worried about that. And so one scientist on Twitter said, that the, those vaccines are the equivalent of Snapchat messages. They, they appear and then they disappear. And I thought that was an interesting, very specific metaphor to address a specific concern. But once again, mm. it's very vivid and, and it might particularly appeal to the generation that uses Snapchat the most. But this idea of something that is transient, that is there and then goes, disappears, was, I thought, particularly interesting. The other metaphors that I think would be used more and more are the ones that try to explain why vaccines are worthwhile, even if they don't work 100%. Mm. Uh, because this is, this is leading, obviously, to concerns. And it also feeds into sort of vaccine hesitancy. Well, what's the point if to vaccinate if people who are double vaxxed can still get ill? And one metaphor that I saw again from a scientist on Twitter that I thought was really interesting was a metaphor of vaccines as a raincoat. So you may have a really good raincoat. And if you go in the drizzle or, you know, it's not raining very hard and you still, and even if you don't have an umbrella, you may not get wet. But if you uh, keep going in and out of the rain and it gets stormy, then after a while, even a good raincoat uh, will let in some rain. And so that is, explains how if you're vaccinated and you may, virus incident may be low or you may be exposed to a small amount of virus, the vaccine will protect you. But if you are exposed to a high viral load or if there's a high level of infections mm -hmm. where you live, you're more likely to still be infected, vaccinated. So these are just examples of metaphors that people are developing to try to address people's concerns, legitimate concerns about, 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 about vaccines. Can I just ask you two quick ones sort of associated with that? I mean, firstly, what do you think of the idea, the metaphor around herd immunity and the pros and cons around that? Yeah, herd immunity is not really a great metaphor because of the herd bit. Um, so, you know, then we people say, well, we are not cows. In fact, 
in, in Italian, that metaphor uh, translates as uh, flock immunity. So it, right. it suggests sheep. And the problem is that sheep are also used metaphorically to suggest sort of thoughtlessly following something yeah. without just because everybody else is doing it. And so in, in, in Italy, that concept is when people from anti-vaxxers use that concept and they say we're not sheep we're not etc etc so it's not the best uh, i know that it also has it raises other concerns because sometimes we think that there is a fixed level of herd immunity that needs to be reached but actually the level of herd immunity that you need to reach to get the r number below one and so to, to when when an epidemic begins to uh, wane depends on our behavior. So there isn't just one figure, but, but yes, it is not the most appropriate. It's also one of those cases where herd immunity used to be a relatively technical concept. And mm. this is something we've seen throughout the pandemic. So herd immunity was a relatively technical concept. It wasn't something that was part of everybody's discourse and, and the people who used it kind of knew what it meant. But now that it's become like many other things, like the R number, like vaccine hesitancy, like which vaccine did you have? It has become part of uh, general conversations. Then it's the literal meaning of herd can become more uh, salient, it's, it's especially, especially people want, for example, undermine the idea of being vaccinated. Mm. Now, that's an interesting point there, because it, it sort of links to something Tony Thorne said when we talked to him last year about the kind of popularization of medical discourse and how that's creates you know problems doesn't it because technical terms sort of spread and become sort of picked up in a way that wasn't entirely intended you know from that technical usage that is often the case the scientists use terms including metaphorical terms in very specific technical uh, senses even like the greenhouse effect mm. is is very has a very specific meaning for scientists but when uh, these things then become part of general discourse the, the 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 associations of the literal meaning become much more salient and then you get different inferences and sometimes misleading conclusions yes and just a sort of quick second one sort of connected to that sort of me- metaphors around sort of masks i've seen sort of anti-mask stuff referring to them as muzzles which has got quite strong connotations again hasn't it of you know being animal animal kind of what would it be sort of control control, restraining an animal and then you know masks being seen by people who are much more on the sort of more cautious side of things saying well they're you know they're simply protection for for you as much as they are for me I mean what what about those sort of descriptions basically because the face is such uh, an important part of who we are in the mouth it is it this kind of contentious symbolic associations of having part of your face covered, which we've seen also in other contexts. For example, certain religious groups who might cover their face. Yeah. They, they're quite powerful symbolic associations. The muzzle has been, I think, the most powerful one because, it's, again, it reduces us to animals and it suggests control. So, so those are powerful. There, there haven't been quite as many metaphors that are in favor that, that suggest that masks are useful but there is one that we have analyzed for one of the papers that some colleagues and I have written where which is a cartoon where you have a, a family on a little boat and they are in a stormy sea and that's the the waves are made up of sort of coronavirus the presentations of the coronavirus with the spike right and then you can see in the distance an island and calm seas and the sun shining and they're heading in that direction. But the, the, they're in a sailing boat 
and the sail has the shape of a mast. The sail is a giant mast. Yeah. Okay. And so that cartoon visually conveys, visually represents the uh, creative metaphorical connection between the sail and the mask. And it suggests mm-hmm. that basically the mask is what will get us to yeah. a point where we don't have to be worried about the virus. So there are some other sort of mm. creative ways of uh, metaphorical ways of suggesting the importance of masks, but it is slightly more of a challenge to to counter the idea of the muzzle, which is so vivid and 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 so emotional as well. No, it's interesting. It's just it, it's kind of depressing as well that the the bad side of the argument has some more powerful metaphors often. <laughs> Sometimes that is the case. Sometimes yeah. that is the case. Yeah. I suppose it's finding the sort of metaphor to challenge that, isn't it? Yes, but there are. I think that because so many scientists uh, are very good at metaphor. You know, Jonathan Van Tam in the UK press conferences. Yeah. If anybody wants to look at Jonathan Van Tam's metaphors in the in the government press conferences, and he has become he's the deputy chief medical officer in uh, England and. He regularly uses metaphors to explain things. Sometimes, in a, in a in, yeah, in a very powerful way. Sometimes slightly controversial, but he's used metaphors of sports and trains and all sorts of things. They've even used that slightly uncomfortable metaphor: "Don't tear the pan- pants off it," which I always I'm not sure about, but that is also very powerful. So yeah, so there are there are scientists are using metaphors very effectively to counter what we might perceive as misrepresentations or unfounded concerns. Mm. Yeah. So, Eleanor, what's your favourite book about language? There are so many, but one that I read not so long ago that is not quite in my area, so I particularly enjoyed it, is a book entitled uh, Talk by Elizabeth Stoko. Elizabeth is a conversation analyst. She's a social psychologist who uh, works on conversation. And, and she works in a fascinating field where people patterns in how we take turns in conversation, how long we pause for what words we choose. And from those patterns, um, infer patterns of behavior, but also in particular can identify when either when not all is well, or when uh, particular linguistic choices might uh, trigger different effects. So two things that are striking, by measuring the length of pauses, can identify the cases where there's some trouble going on, whether in a relationship, between partners, or in a work context. And other things that are really interesting in that book is references to research about, you know, in crisis situations, such as the police talking, trying to talk someone out of jumping off a bridge, very small linguistic choices might make a difference. So do you want to speak instead you want to talk? Or in in situations of conflicts, are you uh, willing to do something uh, as opposed to other ways of asking people whether they want to be involved? So in that book, Elizabeth shows very minute aspects of interaction, whether linguistic choices or pauses or other things can uh, lead to very different effects with real world consequences. For Mm. example, how effectively somebody can diffuse a crisis situation or even how successful a conversation might be between you and the GP receptionist when you ring Mm. for an appointment. So that I find that a fascinating book. Yeah. So what's your favorite linguistic fact or idea? Again, there are so many, but I think I'll go back to my interesting metaphor and say that what is what I find fascinating is how a lot of our language about abstract concepts ultimately comes from our experiences of the bodies we have 
Uh, so our bodies and our body's physical environment and moving in that environment. So we talk about our emotions, for example, as being up or down. You mm -hmm. may feel up or down, up if you are happy and, and down if you're sad. And that really comes from embodied experience of our bodies and the environment around us. And I've already talked about time, which is abstract. We talked about it in terms of movement in space. So there is so much, the language that we use to capture intangible abstract things that actually comes from our bodily experience. And that I find endlessly fascinating. And what one bit of advice would you give to a budding linguist? I would say if you're interested in language and linguistics, go for it. Don't be put off by the fact that people don't know what linguistics is. In fact, take it as an opportunity to tell them how fascinating it is. It is our job to tell other people who don't know about it, what it is and, and why it is interesting, giving them interesting examples. So I would say definitely follow your passion. There are jobs uh, out there, different kinds in so many different fields for people who have studied linguistics or are interested in, in linguistics. The, the, the graduate employment rates for people who study linguistics and, and, and people will appreciate you when, when they understand what you can do. And also you can have a lot of fun. Your data is always constantly around you. So you're never going to be bored. Lovely. Thank you so much. You're very welcome.